Chapter One, Part Eleven of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay. Volume 2. Chapter 1. The Crusades. Part 11. Soon after the Emperor's departure, a new claimant started for the throne of Jerusalem in the person of Alice, Queen of Cyprus and half-sister of the Mary who, by her marriage, had transferred her right to John of Brienne. The grand military orders, however, clung to Frederick, and Alice was obliged to withdraw. So peaceful a termination to the crusade did not give unmixed pleasure in Europe. The chivalry of France and England were unable to rest, and long before the conclusion of the truce, were collecting their armies for an eighth expedition. In Palestine also, the contentment was far from universal. Many petty Mohammedan states in the immediate vicinity were not parties to the truce, and harassed the frontier towns incessantly. The Templars, ever turbulent, waged bitter war with the Sultan of Aleppo, and in the end were almost exterminated so great was the slaughter among them that europe resounded with the sad story of their fate and many a noble knight took arms to prevent the total destruction of an order associated with so many high and inspiring remembrances Kamel, seeing the preparations that were making thought that his generosity had been sufficiently shewn and the very day the truce was at an end assumed the offensive and marching forward to Jerusalem, took possession of it, after routing the scanty forces of the Christians. Before this intelligence reached Europe, a large body of crusaders was on the march, headed by the King of Navarre, the Duke of Burgundy, the Count de Bretagne, and other leaders. On their arrival, they learned that Jerusalem had been taken, but that the Sultan was dead, and his kingdom torn by rival claimants to the supreme power the dissensions of their foes ought to have made them united but as in all previous crusades each feudal chief was master of his own host and acted upon his own responsibility and without reference to any general plan the consequence was that nothing could be done a temporary advantage was gained by one leader who had no means of improving it while another was defeated without means of retrieving himself thus the war lingered till the battle of gaza when the king of navarre was defeated with great loss and compelled to save himself from total destruction by entering into a hard and oppressive treaty with the emir of karak at this crisis aid arrived from england commanded by richard earl of cornwall the namesake of Cour de Leon, an inheritor of his valor his army was strong and full of hope they had confidence in themselves and in their leader 
and looked like men accustomed to victory their coming changed the aspect of affairs the new sultan of egypt was at war with the sultan of damascus and had not forces to oppose two armies so powerful he therefore sent messengers to meet the english earl offering an exchange of prisoners and the complete cession of the holy land richard who had not come to fight for the mere sake of fighting agreed at once to terms so advantageous and became the deliverer of palestine without striking a blow the sultan of egypt then turned his whole force against his moslem enemies and the earl of cornwall returned to europe thus ended the eighth crusade the most beneficial of all christendom had no further pretense for sending her fierce levies to the east to all appearance the holy wars were at an end the christians had entire possession of jerusalem tripoli antioch edessa acre jaffa and in fact of nearly all judea and could they have been at peace among themselves they might have overcome without great difficulty the jealousy and hostility of their neighbors a circumstance as unforeseen as it was disastrous blasted this fair prospect and reillumed for the first time the fervor and fury of the crusades genghis khan and his successors had swept over asia like a tropical storm overturning in their progress the landmarks of ages kingdom after kingdom was cast down as they issued innumerable from the far recesses of the north and east and among others the empire of Khorasan was overrun by these all-conquering hordes the Khorasans, a fierce uncivilized race thus driven from their homes spread themselves in their turn over the south of asia with fire and sword in search of a resting place in their impetuous course they directed themselves towards egypt whose sultan unable to withstand the swarm that had cast their longing eyes on the fertile valleys of the nile endeavored to turn them from their course for this purpose he sent emissaries to barbaquan their leader inviting them to settle in palestine and the offer being accepted by the wild horde they entered the country before the christians received the slightest intimation of their coming it was as sudden as it was overwhelming onwards like the samum they came burning and slaying and were at the walls of jerusalem before the inhabitants had time to look round them they spared neither life nor property they slew women and children and priests at the altar and profaned even the graves of those who had slept for ages they tore down every vestige of the christian faith and committed horrors unparalleled in the history of warfare about seven thousand of the inhabitants of jerusalem sought safety and retreat but before they were out of sight the banner of the cross was hoisted upon the walls by the savage foe to decoy them back the artifice was but too successful the poor fugitives imagined that help had arrived from another direction and turned back to regain their homes nearly the whole of them were massacred and the streets of jerusalem ran with blood jaffa the templars hospitallers and teutonic knights forgot their long and bitter animosities and joined hand in hand to rout out this desolating foe they entrenched themselves in jaffa with all the chivalry of palestine that yet remained and endeavored to engage the sultans of emissa and damascus to assist them against the common enemy 
the aid obtained from the Muslims amounted at first to only four thousand men, but with these reinforcements, Walter of Brienne, the lord of Jaffa, resolved to give battle to the Korismans. The conflict was as deadly as despair on the one side, and unmitigated ferocity on the other could make it. It lasted with varying fortune for two days, when the Sultan of Emesa fled to his fortifications, and Walter of Brienne fell into the enemy's hands. The brave knight was suspended by the arms to a cross in the sight of the walls of Jaffa, and the Corsaminian leader declared that he should remain in that position until the city surrendered. Walter raised his feeble voice, not to advise surrender, but to command his soldiers to hold out to the last. But his gallantry was unavailing. So great had been the slaughter, that out of the grand array of knights there now remained but sixteen hospitallers, thirty-three templars, and three Teutonic cavaliers. These with the sad remnant of the army fled to Acre, and the Corsamans were masters of Palestine. The sultans of Syria preferred the Christians to this fierce horde for their neighbors. Even the sultan of Egypt began to regret the aid he had given to such barbarous foes, and united with those of Emesa and Damascus to root them from the land. The Corsamans amounted to but twenty thousand men, and were unable to resist the determined hostility which encompassed them on every side. The sultans defeated them in several engagements, and the peasantry rose up in masses to take vengeance upon them. Gradually their numbers were diminished. No mercy was shown them in defeat. Barbaquan, their leader, was slain, and after five years of desperate struggles, they were finally extirpated, and Palestine became once more the territory of the Muslims. William Longsword A short time previous to this devastating eruption, Louis the Ninth fell sick in Paris, and dreamed in the delirium of his fever that he saw the Christian and Muslim host fighting before Jerusalem, and the Christians defeated with great slaughter. The dream made a great impression on his superstitious mind, and he made a solemn vow that if he ever recovered his health, he would take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. When the news of the misfortunes of Palestine and the awful massacres at Jerusalem and Jaffa arrived in Europe, St. Louis remembered him of his dreams. More persuaded than ever that it was an intimation direct from heaven, he prepared to take the cross at the head of his armies and march to the deliverance of the Holy Sepulchre. From that moment he doffed the royal mantle of purple and ermine, and dressed in the sober surge becoming a pilgrim. All his thoughts were directed to the fulfillment of his design, and although his kingdom could but ill spare him, he made every preparation to leave it. Pope Innocent the Fourth applauded his zeal and afforded him every assistance. He wrote to Henry the Third of England to forward the cause in his dominions, and called upon the clergy and laity all over Europe to contribute towards it. William Longsword, the celebrated Earl of Salisbury, took the cross at the head of a great number of valiant knights and soldiers. But the fanaticism of the people was not to be awakened either in France or England. Great armies were raised, but the masses no longer sympathized. Taxation had been the great cooler of zeal. It was no longer a disgrace even to a knight if he refused to take the cross. Rudzebouf, a French minstrel, who flourished about this time, 
1250, composed a dialogue between a crusader and a non-crusader, which the reader will find translated in ways fabliaux. The crusader uses every argument to persuade the non-crusader to take up arms and forsake everything in the holy cause. But it is evident from the greater force of the arguments used by the non-crusader that he was the favorite of the minstrel. To a most urgent solicitation of his friend, the crusader, he replies, quote, I read thee right, thou holdest good, to the same land I straight should hie, and win it back with mickle blood, nor gain one foot of soil thereby. While here dejected and forlorn, my wife and babes are left to mourn. My goodly mansion, rudely marred, all trusted to my dogs to guard. But I, fair comrade, well, I wot, an ancient saw of pregnant wit, doth bid us keep what we have got, and troth I mean to follow it. End quote. This being the general feeling, it is not to be wondered at that Louis the Ninth was occupied fully three years in organizing his forces, and in making the necessary preparations for his departure. When all was ready he set sail for Cyprus, accompanied by his queen, his two brothers, the Counts d'Anjou and d'Artois, and a long train of the noblest chivalry of France. His third brother, the Count de Potiers, remained behind to collect another corps of crusaders, and followed him in a few months afterwards. The army united at Cyprus, and amounted to fifty thousand men, exclusive of the English crusaders under William Longsword. Again, a pestilential disease made its appearance, to which many hundreds fell victims. It was in consequence found necessary to remain in Cyprus until the spring. Louis then embarked for Egypt with his whole host, but a violent tempest separated his fleet, and he arrived before Damietta with only a few thousand men. They were, however, impetuous and full of hope, and although the Sultan Melik Shah was drawn up on the shore with a force infinitely superior, it was resolved to attempt a landing without waiting the arrival of the rest of the army. Louis himself, in wild impatience, sprang from his boat and waited on shore, while his army, inspired by his enthusiastic bravery, followed shouting the old war-cry of the first crusaders, Du l'évêt, du l'évêt! A panic seized the Turks. A body of their cavalry attempted to bear down upon the crusaders, but the knights fixed their large shields deep in the sands of the shore, and rested their lances upon them, so they projected above, and formed a barrier so imposing, that the Turks, afraid to breast it, turned round, and fairly took to flight. At the moment of this panic, a false report was spread in the Saracen host that the Sultan had been slain. The confusion immediately became general. The Deroute was complete. Damietta itself was abandoned, and the same night the victorious crusaders fixed their headquarters in that city. The soldiers who had been separated from their chief by the tempest arrived shortly afterwards, and Louis was in a position to justify the hope not only of the conquest of Palestine, but of Egypt itself. End of chapter 1, part 11 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida